Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And that can only mean that we are here to discuss what started as an exploration of the MC2, and then we sort of lied to ourselves, and you let me call it MC2.5 for a minute. Somewhere it went deeply off the rails and became these fucking weird character pieces about representational concept behind characters. And now we're, you know, bouncing back and forth name ideas for it. But like the core identity of what we started with was MC2. How did a hip female Spider-Man not work out? And we got a lot of answers. And it's because like not hip, first of all, um, not even really a female Spider-Man, really like very much spider character. But I wouldn't call Spider-Girl Mayday Parker just a Spider-Man ripoff. It was that and not that in ways that were probably very unexpected for the audience like they weren't just doing the really simple flashy thing and rehashing spider-man but making it a girl but they also weren't going so hard with the fact that they created this new character that was different and really had the opportunity to be modern and using that to its full potential so it was like if you were buying in just to see what it would be like to you know spider-man but girl you weren't really getting that and if you saw that it wasn't that and there was maybe some real meat here to chew on we never really got to chew it. And it's so interesting because the thing that we keep coming back to that we had a chance to talk about with, you know, kind of Black Tarantula somehow already. Don't know how that happened. But then we talked about it extensively with the triple iteration of our Claude Femme Fatales who, they're not Logan. That was our main thing. They sort of honored the Logan code. They were a little bit more like the totemic symbology of Wolverine. And, you know, let's talk totemic symbology symbology for a moment right yeah i love looking at runs and like so we have a phrase in our family which is not everything can be the fergie piss plate <clears throat> which is to say that not every weird little fucking thing i want to harp on can become a meme all right it's one of the ways kevo tries to like put me in a box to like <clears throat> save me from myself when i'm like charging too hard right and he's right not everything can be you know lady fergie's piss plate it's we're just not all that lucky, right? I love you, Josh Duhamel. And so I think then that what I'm trying to say is when we take a look at the ways that some amazing things go horribly off the rails and sort of tragically fail, but you know, there's so much failing upward in comics that we don't talk about enough right now. You know, having managed to survive the great Chicago incident, you know, that time the microphone was on, I want to talk about Chris Claremont with a little bit of distance, right? But I want to talk about X-Men Forever for one moment. I loved X-Men Forever as it was coming out because it, and that's not the, I just, excuse me, that is not the X-Men Forever that features one and only Misachiyama. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other X-Men Forever where like there's this, there's this, this thing that Claremont has this habit of doing where he's like, that's the same character, it's just the multiverse. And like it's Gambit is Prince Namor. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I think Mystique's just like, 
like an old British fencing man or something. Like so it's just like, oh shit, Kitty Pride is that brick. You know, it's just that brick is Kitty Pride. Just like roll with it, man. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't. <clears throat> so one of the things that happens when we either come too close to deconstruction and then sort of take the wrong stop uh, to the right, you know what I mean? Uh, is we sort of miss the thread that creates that totemic symbology, right? One of the things that I think is really important to remember is that we said that like the defining characteristic of a spider totem is this like with great responsibility kind of vibe that you do the right thing for the betterment of everybody, not just yourself. And I think Mayday upholds that, but I don't think she upholds it in exactly her father's way. Absolutely something, not. Yeah, something that we know that Peter does is, and for better or for worse, you can tell me that it makes better superhero stories, but I don't love that Peter charges in fist first all the time. Yeah, I agree with that. And then, you know, I think we saw one of the like really deeper cuts, especially at a time when the book felt like it was a little one note for Mayday. The fact that Mayday sometimes will take a chance on her villains and hope that they will reform and put them back out on the street or make a deal with them, believing that they are being genuine and everybody around her, you know, nobody's saying kill them, but like, do not trust them. Do not believe them when they show you this emotion. Don't let this appeal to the heart work. And she does it on a few occasions and it comes back to bite her in the ass and it does affect other people. And it's a really great example because there are other options that are not like be a Frank Castle and kill people, but she takes one that is a little too trusting, a little bit naive, and it still follows the totemic spider, you know, with great power comes great responsibility thing, but it fails in having a little bit of cynicism and a knowledge of the world. And it's one of the things I really do love best because it shows you like she's not going to make the same decision that Peter makes every time. And sometimes that's really great. And sometimes that is a mistake. And both things are what we want to see in a character that is putting its own spin on a core concept. And I think that's one of the reasons that Spider-Girl had like a moment. She had a real hot moment for a second in that one of the most recognizable characters out of one of Marvel's, at this point, most important miniseries in its pantheonic stable, Earth-X. When Earth-X came in and it, you know, that's that 0 through 12 and X issue, and, you know, there's the half, there's a sketchbook, there's the omnibus, there's a soundtrack, there's just Earth-X is a way to live. And it's gone on to influence things like Jason Aaron's Avengers and the Eternals film, and I want to say every goddamn creator who was alive during the 90s. So Earth-X had one of its most significant characters be Spider-Girl. And Earth-X debuted back in January of 1999. And that's a year or two into Spider-Girl. And it makes me wonder a little bit if it was like, oh, that's a property coming out right now. All right, uh, we'll do something with that. Yeah, okay, we can run with that. We can do something with like a crazy venomized version of Spider-Girl. So I think when we take a look at whether or not a character is just like a blatant ripoff of another character, I think when you start seeing totemic representations of that person, they're officially not just a shadow anymore. Like, that there are so many alternate fucking Mayday Parkers is crazy enough to prove that this whole podcast was worth it. Yeah, I think exactly that. I think the fact that having done all this work to explore the MC2 and just like, you know, look at another line, the fact that when we said like, okay, are there any other appearances? Is there anything 
else we should cover before we start to put a lid on this? And that we found, you know, what I don't think is an insane set of connective threads. I get that it's not really MC2. We have moved on from the concept of like other places where MC2 characters appear or even something like, you know, as Guardians of the Galaxy, where it's a mainstay version of the character. But the fact that we started to uncover patterns and publication flows and things that just showed us that like the idea of creating a lot of these characters goes beyond their presence in one book or one line and it really gets into some questions and explorations of what it means to have an intellectual property that is essentially infinite that you want to play with in more than just like we can tell any story about Wolverine that we want because we'll just publish it and nobody's really going to bitch about the fact that Wolverine can't be two places in once no we want to do a little more than that what would the daughter of Logan look I also wonder about the properties of making it daughters right you know but that means there was very much at that time this sort of calculated romance of the idea of the boy becoming a man embracing their daughter and you know we saw ripple effects of that sort of proprietary idea of ownership of women as a form of false feminism from men at that time like save the tatas haha very lovely nah I think the rest of the woman attached to those breasts is still pretty important too so fuck yourself save the woman and the whole you know I was a scumbag when I was young but now my daughter and I gotta protect her cause I got a daughter now yeah but you know what people always had daughters and if you don't feel horrible about who you were outside of that context you're not actually in favor of women you're in favor of your property and you know that's one of the things that we I think found ourselves victim of when discussing early Spider-Girl that is part of what made this conversation so hard. So much of early Spider-Girl was like, yeah, but isn't he dreamy? I'm gonna go do something cool at the mall. Girls basketball. I'm edgy. Time to spider it up, dad. Like, there was this sort of manic post-share Horowitz clueless meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer by way of what if my so-called life really was too edgy for kids kind of mentality that Spider-Girl, her sheer existence as this standalone version of Peter Parker, in spite of the struggles that she would occasionally incur as a female character, is why that we can discuss how many Spider-Girls are based on Spider-Girl, not counting like, you know, the amazing Jessica Drew or Julia Carpenter, or why are there so many J-Nays? Well, at least there's Maddie Franklin. Okay, because she's not like Jamati, but I would also love that name. So I would love to get your thoughts on the fact that we do feel that Mayday as Spider-Woman has sort of outstriped the faux feminism of the late 90s that birthed her. I mean, I think you said it all in that last part, faux feminism of the late 90s that birthed her. I think it took this industry a really long time to, I say it took, like it's done, like it's an ongoing conversation, but the 90s were this time where people were trying to, I think, make good on some ideas of recognizing that equality ought to exist in comic books and in comic book characters. But one of the biggest problems being women aren't writing most of these. So there's still a lot of problems with trying to figure out how to say Spider-Man, like take a property like Spider-Man and we can have a character that is equally important that is a woman. I think Mayday is really one of the people that comes closest to fulfilling that. But man, does it take 200 issues of MC2 work, a lot of which is not really super high quality and doesn't really move 
her forward. Um, but it does sort of repeatedly press upon the idea that this is the inheritor of Peter Parker's legacy. And regardless of whether or not we're able to make that work in the immediate long term, that's going to be an important thing. As we continue to age and comics continue to age, there will need to be, we can always de-age people and restart things, but there's going to always be a need to reckon with legacies and characters aging to the point where they have children that grow up. Um, and those are important conversations that we keep using Wolverine and some version of Laura as another example, but it really, the fact that that started as, you know, she's not his daughter, she's a clone and he doesn't really treat her like a daughter, but he does treat her like somebody that is, is his responsibility. And rather than trying to set her on her own path, she became another victim of constant trauma and that being a way to justify her hardenedness and why it's okay for her to be a killer and why it's okay for her to be like Wolverine. That's where we get her when she starts through NYX into really the second coming X-Force era. And then for one thing, women start writing her more frequently. But I think these ideas evolve as we practice them over, you know, a decade, 15 years. And people started to realize that she can be Wolverine. She can be the flagship X-Men team's Wolverine and not be a victim of human trafficking, a victim of rape. She doesn't need to be a scent triggered sex doll murderer. Like she can have a cynicism about her and a willingness to kill that is not entirely based on things that have been done to her. And I think as we moved into that, we started to see that this could really be a character that, you know, has legs. With Mayday, it just took a lot longer because we started earlier and people were still not recognizing that it takes more than just saying Spider-Man but woman to fully flesh out and make an interesting character. And in the meantime, as long as this is, you know, selling a few books here and there, why don't we play around with other versions of this character? And I think that oversaturation of stories and characters overall, but then oversaturation of this specific identity, Spider-Girl slash Spider-Woman, it just means a lot of them are going to fall by the wayside, especially in this era where they're still not being written with the respect and intentionality they deserve. Takes us really far into, you know, the Spider-Verse stuff before we start seeing, okay, her journey, long though it has been, is one that is worthy of the type of recognition that we see from A-list characters. I couldn't agree more. And in honor of that conversation, I would like to take a moment and look at some pretty significant versions of Mayday Parker that are not our precious Mayday. Now, in addition to Earth X's Mayday Parker, there's actually in Paradise X, which is one of the two sequels, a Spider Girl who is May Parker, the child of Ben Riley and Mary Jane Watson. So there's even an alternate version of an alternate version that was coming out before Spider Girl even had. 10 years. That's awesome. Yeah. I do love that Earth X, for so many different reasons, just managed to become an iconic Marvel universe and timeline that is referenced artistically, is referenced storyline wise. Everybody knows that it's not 616 continuity, but it's really amazing what people can take from that because it is so stylish, so big, so recognizable, and it really did do a good job of distilling characters to important traits and weaving all that distillation into something that was really cohesive. And yeah, I really do think Spider-Man having a child is one of those important things. I know that editorial and creative
creators really go back and forth on this idea of Spider-Man being old enough to have a child. I We've discussed this before, and I, I really do feel that at, after all this time, we are officially at Spider-Man should be a father, and that should remain for quite some time. But I love the idea that, that it, for Earth-X, that was an essential quality, that there would be a child of Spider-Man. I think it always makes sense for it to be a young woman because Spider-Man is such a male and male-associated character. But once you get that established, the fact that you can then go in and create an alternate to that is pretty cool too. And that's in part due to the fact that Earth-X drew on so many of the best parts of the Marvel Universe, history, and franchise. And there's actually, this was, uh, man, when I found this, I sent it to Teak and I was just like, they're doing this to hurt us. (laughs) And I, first of all, best fucking costume I've ever seen. I just need to give it up to May Parker of Earth 8410. Fucking fantastic take on the Spider-Woman costume mixed with Spider-Man colors. She's fucking hot as hell. And I love everything about this sort of iteration of Spider-Girl because it's birth of Earth 8410, which was first seen in Machine Man, Volume 2, Number 1, created by Tom DeFalco and Herb Trimp. Just reminder, Herb Trimp is the guy who drew Wolverine's first appearances, who drew Captain Britain's first appearances. So good name, right? And this Earth would go on to appear in tons of titles. But one of the most fascinating things is this world has its own wild thing. Not our wild thing. But she's also from way before this world had a spider girl. So this is like, I I sound excited because I am, right? So it appears in a handful of issues of Machine Man. It appears in an issue of Amazing Spider-Man annual number 20. Then it goes over to a number of the UK magazines. That's Death's Head, Wild Thing. We see it appear occasionally in She-Hulk. There's appearances in titles like What If, Thor, Core. So this universe has had such an unbelievable ride having appeared for so long. But admittedly, this universe stopped appearing regularly sometime in the 90s. While true, it did have that amazing Paradise X appearance. It ultimately appears once in the Kurt Busiek run of Avengers. But the next time it really matters is Astonishing Tales Iron Man 2020, which would come out in December of 2008. So this universe saw some really sparse printing for quite a while. And so I'm looking at all of these different appearances uh, of this universe, and I I keep having trouble finding this issue that references this Spider-Woman, this Spider-Girl character, uh, Spider-Woman 2020 or Spider-Girl 2020, whatever you want to call her. And and that's when I realized released September 1st, 1998 is X-Men and Spider-Man Times Arrow Book 3, The Future. Oh my God, it's a novel. Written yeah. by Tom DeFalco. <laughs> it's, I, I, I don't even know what to say. It feels impossible that this is a, a novel written by Tom DeFalco uh, about Spider-Girl 2020 and it's in his own universe, which is one of the things that makes it so funny because like most of the time when it's a novel appearance, it's like, oh, that's not really in canon. Like, you know, a uh, life-changing editor and author, Alyssa Quitney, huge influence on anybody who read Vertigo, whether or not you realize it, we were lucky enough to have her on the show. She did that uh, really interesting rogue novel. And she was like, yeah, they basically said, don't worry about content. And so like, oh, okay, uh, don't worry about continuity. It's a fucking book. So I do worry about continuity though, because Tom DeFalco wrote this and he says it's the same universe. Okay, sure. Um, I now want this character hand her over. Yeah. And for anybody, we've said it a couple times, but um, this was the most recognizable anchor for me and this might be for some other people this is the universe for Iron Man 2020 Arno Stark who is the Iron Man who has the big clock 
clockwork gear shoulder pads who had like a little bit of a resurgence recently when Tony Stark discovered that he is in fact adopted and that Arno Stark is the true child of Howard and Maria Stark. Not really a, a thing that I paid much attention to, but when I saw the reference that we were talking about and was trying to figure out like, do I know any of this? It is Iron Man 2020 who had been referenced long before this comes from this universe. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of stuff that I'll be honest, I didn't realize. And now I'm yeah. glad I know because yeah. it, it kind of fucking matters. Like it's the way that we're talking about multiversity, right? You know, clear the fucking table. We're talking about <laughs> multiversity here because the thing that keeps happening is people keep saying, oh, I want to see this come together with that. And I want to, you know, I should also use an offensive fangirl voice when I do that too, because female fans have just as much to say and they have every right to say it. They do. And, and they have opinions on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and the thing I'm saying is something completely fair to want. It's a yeah. multiversal experience that actually reflects multiversity and not simply three universes that you remember from big covers. People want that sort of deep dive. They want that exploration. And if Tom DeFalco is going around and working to build that and we're seeing that sort of completing this idea where these characters are able to exist in multiple iterations on multiple worlds, that's... that pretty much proves our concept from you know the start i think too like one of the things that we're really dialing into is you know we all know the big ones house of m age of apocalypse heroes reborn we know the big alternate universes that can come up again and again and people will generally know them we also for some of us who are you know who read books like exiles or occasional like cross time caper sort of like one-off things we know that there are a bunch of other universes that you know maybe Maybe they'll get an issue. Maybe there's like a goose Psylocke that will then get referenced again. But those, you know, you do them for the one issue, the Quantum Leap style that Exiles was, or you have these enormous full-bodied universes that can be referenced anytime. What we've been really dialing into with this are the ones that find themselves in between for any number of reasons. You know, maybe they were trying to ignite a new line of comics and it just didn't work out. So now you have something that is more detailed than a single Exiles issue universe but is not itself ever at the level of the Ultimates universe. You have something like Earth 8410 where this May Parker that we're discussing comes from and where Arno Stark comes from that like there's a bunch of stuff happening here but this is not one that you can reference to most fans and have them go sure. The best you could do is like what I just did which is hey if you heard those things that were coming out recently about how Iron Man is adopted and his brother Arno Stark this is that Arno Stark. But these universes really important work is done in the creation of these stories and especially that the work that we're talking about of getting into the totemic nature of certain characters and how you would spin them off in a way that is better than just this character but different gender or this character but what if one minor thing somebody that can really participate a full experience of I'm a spider person but who is not just a some version of Peter Parker it's somebody that has been affected by the Peter Parker legacy in a way that makes them Spider-Man, but their own person. And I think there is so much for us as readers and for those of us who are writers as well to look at universes like these and come to understand what worked and what didn't work about trying to dial into these characters. I'll tell you what didn't work for me mm -hmm. is I'm doing research as you're talking because that's what I do. Yeah. And I'm wondering about a character that I just sent you so that we could talk about it. And I'm thinking, all right, well, this
this spider ham version of Mayday Parker. It cannot. Po- oh, yep. It was created by, in fact, Tom, Tom DeFalco. DeFalco. And it's one of our major things that we've been saying this whole time is that when it's the same people, it kind of feels like the same thing over and over again. And so, well, ultimately, it is very cool that Tom DeFalco has an, has had an opportunity to write Swiney Girl three times. That's in two issues of Amazing Spider Family and one issue of the Amazing Spider-Ham 25th anniversary where uh, Tom DeFalco wrote like three out of the four stories. You know, it's to your credit about the point of like there's harder versions to reference. Like the recently hyped and then fucking forgotten like it was Marvel's Trouble or something. Dark Ages? Dark Ages fucking fizzled hard. A bunch of the cast was like, oh man, I can't wait to be part of that book. And then like a preview for the first issue dropped in the free comic book day issue and everybody was like oh and I was like oh okay and then the thing came out and I couldn't get enough people to cover issue two I remember I was just coming on to the podcast in the middle of Dark Ages being released and I didn't really know anything about it at the time because I thought it was a real thing that was just mostly dealing I thought it was kind of like King in Black like the X-Men would be in it at some point but they weren't a big deal so I would get to it later and I noticed that it wasn't being covered on the show and I was really confused and I didn't want to sound like an idiot when I asked so I started to go read about it and as soon as you start reading about it you go oh I I understand I don't need to ask I I understand why it's not being covered because it was just sort of this I hate to say this derogatorily but silly alternate universe that had no real substance to discuss it felt like it felt like giving a really talented creative team carte blanche in a vanity project sort of way not in an exploration sort of way and I think you know one of the reasons that that's a bad idea is spider girl our opinion of spider girl is very positive our opinion of the project itself positive our opinion of tom defalco positive but the idea that at some point this did become sort of a vanity project is hard to miss i mean we just named three spider girls that were created by tom defalco that aren't from this universe and you know i dark ages is a really fantastic example because it's so current and it is a small minor universe it's it's not something that you know has been referenced a lot beforehand and it doesn't have a lot of appearances it just has this book so like this is an opportunity to do exactly what we're talking about and really play around with who characters are and how by reflecting the character that we know in a universe where things are different how do things change um but that is that is tough work and you have to commit to selling your readers on why it's important and it's either because this universe will somehow play a greater role in a multiversal plot discussion so you know pay attention to it or we are really doing some quality work by taking these characters out of the context in which you know them and putting them into a new context that exposes new facets of what makes these people interesting and unfortunately I just don't think they were able to deliver on that last one like I don't think by the by the time the first couple issues were coming out I don't even think they were trying to say that to the audience anymore I don't think they were trying to convince us read this because you really will see a different side of Spider-Man. It was just kind of like, yeah, we made it, so read it, dummies. That ultimately winds up the danger of the media machine. There's this sense of, well, it's produced. And we've been lucky over the years that some significant unreleased or unfinished sort of comics have been completed. We saw a number of those with the Marvel Legacy push where they were like, at last, we're going to release this desk drawer issue. And Marvel used to be so 
fucking good about this. They would just be like, oh, it's a backup in the annual because it's about to age itself out of being relevant, which you know what? That's okay. You can age out of being relevant, but that doesn't mean the work has to go to waste. And well before, you know, it was out of vogue to know better, right? I was a really big fan of that 90s classic Hellstrom run. And there were those famous unfinished issues of the Satana follow-up. And when they finally came out in the Omnibus Edition remastered to a better quality than the CBZs and CBRs and PDFs that had been circling the internet, it was really nice to see this unfinished work completed because, you know, I find myself so fucked up by the what never got released. There's this famous thing that when Daredevil Born Again finished that Frank Miller was going to do like a two-part story with Doctor Strange and the Incredible Team, which is really just, you know, one phenomenal webmaster over at Daredevil Man Without Fear did a great thing on how it never really got that far. So there was no issue that never got made. So you can just sort of imagine what never got. But we actually know, because we've discussed a few of them on the show, that there were some MC2 stories that were kicked around, like the Halloween story. And then there were some MC2 stories that were fucking completed. Like they penciled the next issue of Wild Thing and they penciled another issue of Fantastic Five. And I actually want to talk just a little bit about that very thing because one of the things that I've found in some of my after-the-fact research is that Tom DeFalco one time said, Mike Martz, MC2's new editor, occasionally makes noises about gathering all the material that had been unreleased in a monster-sized comic, but the sales department doesn't think they can sell it. If you'd like to see this material get printed, write Bob Harris or Bill Jemis. And one of the things that's so significant about that, about that very idea, is that there is enough unused but completed MC2 material out there that they could put together a monster-sized special. I don't know that there is a world clamoring for it, but if they ever did an MC2 omnibus, man, I hope they'd shove that stuff in. Oh, absolutely. That is a really interesting tidbit, only because, just guys, just think about how much stuff there is for any popular story that you know that goes unused, but that real work was done on. And, you know, it just I find it so important to remind myself as a reader, what a small piece of the picture we all have being on this side of the book. And I love that. You know, I don't think we need to know everything. But one, I think because we don't always know everything, we might not realize just how incredibly hard people are working at all times that people will really put their creative heart and soul into something that just for whatever reason will not be published. And, you know, we'll look at a creator who's not doing much and be like, oh, they barely work anymore. When, you know, it turns out that the magnum opus that they were working on is just kind of going to sit in the vault for a while. And it also speaks to the fact that like so many great ideas are thought of and worked on that we just don't see. And I try and remind myself of stuff like this only just to be a better fan and always be keeping in mind that amazing people are working on this stuff and really trying hard. And there's so much that I think it would be so cool to know, but just that I never will. And so I really have to be satisfied with what I do know, what it is fair to make a criticism of. I mean, the thing that I always say is I just didn't connect with that or that didn't connect with me, which is never to say like that person is a bad writer, but to say that for whatever reason, it didn't work for me. And sometimes things that didn't work for anybody else totally work for me. And, you know, we are, we have such a small view of this whole process, but it's really cool to every once in a while see a reminder that it is a small view and that should we get the opportunity, we should maybe draft up a five page letter to Marvel editorial saying how much we would love to get this last material 
material from the MC2. Because one of the things that really can't be missed is how many pages of changes must exist. Like, I am sort of a canonist where, like, I don't want it all. So there's this argument that canon is the, like, province of those who want to gatekeep. But I don't want all of the canon to use it against anyone. I want all of the canon for a historical posterity's sake. I want to know and say, you know what, and this is where you can see that they stopped referring to that event as having happened. So, no biggie. And if for no other reason, if you know all the canon, you don't lord it over somebody, you you disseminate it. You help people to learn this thing that they want to know more about that they don't know more about. So, you know, the idea of knowing all of the canon is a, sort of an exciting way for me to engage new readers, not just old readers. And so when I find out stuff like Tom DeFalco said in 2000, our plans are as unstable as the rest of the industry. We currently plan two more limited series for later in the year. Dark Devil followed by American Dream. If the buzz sells well enough, he'll get a monthly title. Unfortunately, there are no plans to revive a next at this time. So, all right, to kind of jump into the Wayback Machine for two seconds, our first few episodes of MC2 focused primarily on that line view, and in our first three episodes, we covered Spider-Girl and the matching J2 and a next story. In episodes four and five, we covered Fantastic Five, Wild Thing, The Buzz, and Dark Devil. The American Dream miniseries didn't show up until episode 13. That means we went eight episodes from The Buzz, which was the story point at which they were gonna tell an American Dream story. It took another like five or six years of publishing. I want to know what American Dream story would have gone there and if it would have, like you've always said, been a turning point for the MC2 universe. Yeah, that's the other side of my previous argument that we don't need to know everything. There's some stuff that like I don't need to know it because I deserve to have everything. It's that I I'm so fascinated that I would just love to know and I would love to see not to judge but just to to get another perspective and I think if you can come to a lot of unknown material and behind the scenes stuff with that perspective of just like loving curiosity rather than I must be armed with all the knowledge so I can decide what is canon what is not what is good what is bad what the true intentions were no I just want to know because it's fun and it's so cool and I so respect that people had these ideas and were working on something that had to change and I saw the thing that changed but I didn't see the original and I just love to see both just so I could you know compare the two and see what a writer's mind works like when they have to make these kinds of changes in a serial format. I feel the same way it's about knowing how it would be different. I don't mind changes like you know I I respect needing to go back and update a work and I think especially when the work contains suspect language or themes yeah go back and fix your shit but there's something to be said about being able to like compare the original original idea and then look you know at what came next to it one of the reasons that the phoenix the untold story one shot was such a big deal was because how often did you get to see that and in a world where printing something was vastly expensive sure but you can just get your shit on a sub stack now and be fine so there doesn't need to be this reason to spend so much money one of my favorite things to do is to take a look at the morrison manifesto in the omnibus for new x-men and look at how it's totally unreal 
related to new X-Men in some ways. So I don't know. I think when you have that chance to sort of look at the ugly mirror of what could have been and ugly just to say like, oh, because it'll always be better and worse than what you got, because what you got is a tangible thing and the better or worse of it is an ephemeral you can't even understand. Yeah. And it's that thing. You will always be imagining your dream version. And of course, that's going to be better. But ultimately, that is your dream. That is not even the dream of the person that was creating at the time. There, If you could see that, it would just become concrete and no longer your dream. I can't help but also have come across more Tom DeFalco back matter. And I'm a really big fan of the X-Men creators talk on series by Tom DeFalco. It's a really great way to get a deep insight into the creator's work that we're talking about here, especially, you know, there's ones in that book that are a little bit more disappointing. Like, you know, and this book is from like 2006. So all of the interviews go back a little bit before that. But in it, you know, Stan Lee already back then is like, oh yeah, wings and the eye guy plus girl. So like, you're already talking about not the best memory on some of these creators. And I have been in interviews where the subject you are asking is just not the subject your interviewee wants to talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's what you've prepared. Okay. And so like, there are some of these interviews that are sort of painful to read, but one of the major takeaways I've gotten from that book is how many creators so clearly remember the things they never got to do, but don't clearly remember the plot of the issues they did. And I think that has to do again with the totemic symbology of these characters and what we're talking about. Creator Paul Ryan, in discussion with Tom DeFalco, his co-writer, essentially, on Fantastic Five, in the Fantastic Four comic creators on edition, said, a few years after you left Fantastic Four, you were reactivated to do Fantastic Five. How did it feel to be called back into service? And, you know, he talks about how he was unhappy at DC. And, you know, at first I'm reading it like, this is the most standard thing I've ever read. But then we get to the idea of doing the next generation of the Fantastic Four appealed to me. It was just kind of exciting to screw up again, so to speak, to see if my FF uniform still fit. When Fantastic Five was canceled, I had just finished penciling number six, never released, which was never inked, and was waiting for a plot for number seven. The second issue had just come out. Okay, this changes so many of our fucking discussions. (laughs) Because that means they knew that the second issue had just come out. They knew at like Spider-Girl 13 that this was no longer a universe. That does make sense. I think we can see that now. I think when we started this not having the same information and seeing what was developing, it did seem at, you know, for the, I really think like up to even the 50th issue that like they were hoping. But it makes total sense to me that by issue 13, you know, because DeFalco talks about how they were constantly just like, don't get your hopes up. You're probably not getting another one. And I can't imagine that if that's happening for one book that everybody's sitting around going like, well, if we just keep by the grace of God getting picked up for another six issues, this universe will definitely take off. And that's in so much of our discussion, the big bummer that they kept being in this waiting, right? Like there's this, there's this sort of funny feeling I get where if I know the person I have plans with is going to blow me off, I spend my whole day just fine. I know I'm going to be home and you know what? If I wind up going out, I might be inconvenienced, but I'm going to be so fucking shocked that I'm going out with this person. I'm going to have a great time. Okay. Consequently, if I know the person is a, you know, they would have to literally be dismembered and currently on fire to call me and postpone the plans kind of person, then yeah, 
I go through my day knowing I'm going to go out that night and I'm going to have a great time. When it's one of those fucking in-between people who have like free will and the ability to make their own decisions where I kind of feel like I can't get my day going. I can never do anything because anything I do is going to come right before that the call. That that's the call that does the thing the call. And that's I think what MC2 was waiting on. They were always waiting on a cancellation or an extension. And you know we know that that's not really a way to live when it comes to creating a vibrant ecosystem of stories. I think that if you are a company man with a lot of experience, yeah, you can keep writing six issues and they probably aren't going to be your best, but they can definitely have some quality to them. But it's, it is no surprise then to see that there was just really no way this was becoming the, the ultimate universe. And it even goes to the heart of the conversation that we kind of started the transition to Fantastic Five with. When asked about his time on the title, Paul Ryan said in response to Tom DeFalco that essentially all he remembers about the title was that they were just finishing up old continuity. He went on to say, we, I should say that the esteemed writer, so he starts with we did it and then changes it to DeFalco did it, tied up the loose ends as far as Hyperstorm, what happened to him and so forth. There was a final showdown between Hyperstorm and Franklin. Didn't Reed and Sue suffer some debilitating effect from that battle? I think we found them on a space station somewhere. I still have a great spread which shows the Fantastic Five riding their space scooters to the location. There was a very emotional, very poignant ending to that story too. Sue was still in suspended animation because nobody could figure out a way to bring her out without killing her and Reed was a mess. I remember they were going to turn the ship over to the kids. Tom DeFalco, parried with, would have ended up being Kristoff, Ben's twins, Franklin, and Johnny and Elijah's kid. To which Paul Ryan replies, right, we were going to see that transition over the 12 issues so that by issue 12, they would be the new Fantastic Five. I remember that in issue 6, we had the kids facing their baptism of fire. We had costumes for them too. And you brought Alicia back as the new Herald for Galactus. I recall the continuity of the time had Alicia dating the Silver Surfer. Oh! Okay, then. Um, when we talk about the, the totemic symbology of a team, I, I would have hated this book by issue 12. I agree. But also, it does make me feel a little bit less like I'm being gaslit because you really do see, like, the biggest thing is the introduction of Ben's twins and the fact that they have powers and are wrestling with whether or not to be superheroes. The whole thing does feel like it's leading towards, of course, especially Reed and Sue can't be doing this anymore. But like, really, it's probably better that Johnny and Ben not be doing it either. Like, you can see the transition to it's the kids team now, but then it just fizzles out and it really doesn't go anywhere. And reading this was like very good confirmation that like this momentum and the track that I feel like I I thought I was on, like the fact that I ended up at a completely different stop is not because I did something wrong. Which is such a weird thing to talk about. But, you know, as somebody who works in communication, Right. One of the biggest things that I focus on when I'm making this show is the sender receiver relationship and the ways in which the sender receiver relationship exists across airwaves, across listenership, across the way we get across what the episodes have in them. And the idea that you are set up with expectation for things to go a certain way is in many ways uh, a sacred kind of trust between reader and writer where you vaguely have an idea of what you're in for. We've been talking a lot about bad nomenclature on the show lately. It's been coming up because in the course of Avengers, X-Men, Eternals, 
Apple's Judgment Day, we have had some issue with some of the naming of some of the side titles and some of the tie-ins. And, you know, so that's still a problem we're seeing today. But the Fantastic Five, the way it was packaged, this idea of a Fantastic Four for a new generation that doesn't involve Reed and Sue in this regard, that sees Johnny as the leader, where Franklin is this, I don't know, you know, if I can separate out the man pain and the mullet from Franklin, I guess I could see how they had tried to design a character that had by the same standards where Spider-Girl was hip and cool because she was aping early 90210. Perhaps Franklin was kind of like an alpha male in their minds, just bogged down by childhood issues. He was very much aping Ray from the heights. Yeah, and in fact, how do you talk to an angel, right? So the thing that I wind up thinking is the writer here is not the one who betrayed the reader. But if we're going to keep this, you know, idea of reader-writer relationship, sender-receiver relationship, one of the things is because the corporate nature of comics at the time existed in a way that required a certain volume of purchasing in order to see that title exist in any form, this was way past the time where Marvel was doing three stories in one book and calling it Marvel Comics Presents or Marvel Triple Action. This is way before the time where digital books are readily available. So when Fantastic Five didn't thrive in the way they intended it to, they had no choice but to kind of tank. And I think when you look at it that way, it's hard not to see that the problem with, okay, I'm going to say it kind of weird, but it's kind of my problem with most reality shows, actually. I like a TV show because I can be sure that the writer and I have a bond of trust that the writer is going to seek to create a satisfying conclusion. And even if it takes me six months, I'm looking at you, Twin Peaks, The Return, to make my peace with your God, I will never call Judy my God. It comes to a place where I I understand the art, right? But with like a reality show, no matter how talented Mondo is, you're still going to need to do an all-star season to give him his due. And that's, you know, the Richard Blaze story. And that's, I think, where comics and TV and books and film even though they are written media, have a meta-contextualization of where they themselves have a story. And when you examine that story, that story is built of reality. So you cannot help some of the secondary meta parts that are determined by the overworld god modding of reality. I don't even know that I have anything that I can expand on that with. It is exactly the thing that I think we all forget in this process as readers, we're responsible for the other end of that writer-reader, communicator-receiver relationship, and we have a duty to ourselves to sort of understand our expectations. But I think we really have a duty to those communicating with us to keep in mind that our work is almost entirely passive, and their work is so active, and we receive a lot of it, but we don't know everything. I bring this up so much because I experience so much of the 
joy and the fun and the exuberance that comes from being a fan of comic books and of fans communicating online and sharing in their stories and their joys and their sadness when it comes to things like comics. But I also see the real toxicity that comes up a lot. And I think it is born out of many things, the safety of the anonymity of the internet being a big one. But I do think that the a trigger is often the missing of expectations. Expectations were set that weren't met. How did that happen? There's a lot of reasons why. And I think it's reasonable for us to question those things and say, like, did you guys, you know, through advertising and hype, did you set some expectations that you never had any intention of following up on? And there are other examples where, you know, did you have an intention that I maybe picked up on, but it didn't work out for any number of reasons? And rather than being abusive and saying that I was tricked, maybe I say like, gosh, I would really love to know why it didn't work out and what your plan was. And I love the work that you did on what was available. And I I can't wait to see what comes next. It's one of the odder things about taking a look at the way comics get released. Something that I always keep somewhere in my head is that when series creator Judd Winnick went on to leave Exiles, which I probably haven't read it in a little too long to comfortably make this statement. But if I'm not mistaken, Exiles is like a nearly perfect book. (laughs) And when Judd Winnick left, he left the team like a year's worth of scripts. And if I'm not mistaken, Marvel made the decision to ship Exiles double. And instead of saying, let this art exist over time, they chose to release it really quickly. I, for a really long time, looked at that decision as, I don't know why they fucking chose to burn off such a great run. And I think I need to, as an adult, critically assess that statement. And we've talked a lot about how, like, I've said that I assumed that Spider-Girl had to, like, the MC2 line had to have appeared in, oh, what event did I say it had to have appeared in? And then it didn't because it time-wise didn't line up. Do you happen to remember? It wasn't Secret Wars. No, because it did appear in Secret Wars. Well, barely, but... Oh, Exiles. Oh my god, that's the thing. Oh my god. I kept... That's so funny. I kept saying that MC2 yeah, had, had to, to have appeared right, because how in could Exiles. It yeah. And to realize that Exiles only started a year or two after Spider-Girl and would end well before Spider-Girl would end. And I think about how Exiles lost its luster. We don't consider what time means. I'm a big procedurals person, and if you can sort of divorce the police from it, the better, right? And we're doing a rewatch of Bones because I love it. And so Bones ran for 12 years. It was on from 2005 to 2017, and it ran 12 seasons. Okay, here's the thing, though. If you go 12 years in reverse from the start of Bones, you're actually at the series finale of The Golden Palace, the Golden Girls spinoff that featured three of them. That's how much time 12 years is. That's how long Spider-Girl ran. 12 years. And this idea that if Spider-Girl ran 12 years, she was only commercially viable for maybe two of them that first year and then I would say there was a lot of I mean I worked at a comic shop at the time I would say there was a weird amount of buzz around Last Hero and Last Planet standing for books that I don't think anybody would have ever given a fucking shit about and it's staggering to me to contextualize 12 years of Spider-Girl that's one year longer than Modern Family ran that's three times as long as New X-Men ran that is three times as long as John Byrne and Chris Claremont were on Uncanny X-Men together. That is
is twice as long as it took for Sandman to come out. And I think we saw a vision of that in the way that culture had changed from the start to the end and that we weren't necessarily seeing the same evolution uh, with Spider-Girl that we would see of other characters that, you know, especially young characters that experienced a decade plus of time passing in the real world and how that just slightly tweaks the formula for how they're presented. I think we notice things like that, but I think in a context like this, where you talk about something as beloved as the Exiles, which is all about alternate universes and this is an alternate universe and how do these two not line up? When you start to get into those back end details of how the time is passing, it really does change the perspective entirely and it opens up a whole new set of questions. One of the big questions that this led to for me as a reader, sort of considering 12 years, that's enough time for there to be so many other versions of Spider-Girl and so much ground to be covered in terms of the evolution of Spider-Man as a title. And that's where this all kind of comes back together and comes back to one for me because I think to discuss Spider-Verse with a little bit of distance is a fascinating thing. I was talking to TK about how after it came up in last episode, the examination of the Wolverine femme fatales, as it were, I did a lot of research on Slingers and... Fuck if I didn't read the whole thing in a day. And I tell you, it's kind of hard to get your hands on. So, hmm. and the reason I'm bringing up Slingers is because I am shocked in some ways by how Slingers started at like the exact same time as Spider-Girl. And yet it is every bit the more adult book we were always saying we thought Spider-Girl probably should have been. And yet at the same time, its very existence is never once mentioned in the pages of Spider-Girl. Running around the Marvel Universe at the same time as Spider-Girl's sort of birth into existence, one of the last moments, as a matter of fact, of Tom DeFalco's tenure. We read Amazing Spider-Man 436 to 439, and the issues of Amazing Spider-Man that give birth to that Slinger's title are issues 433 to 435. So we're talking about the Identity Crisis plot era anyway, and the thing that that changes everything that follows right after that is we get Maddie Franklin Spider-Woman and then we get the JMS run and we get Aranya and once we get Aranya she's the first to my memory real oh shit moment that happened to Spider-Man after DeFalco's tenure but how can we continue to associate Spider-Man via a secondary character with a snapshot moment of Spider-Man one of the most important parts if we're going to do a spin on Spider-Man if we're going to break out of the Peter Parker box. It can't just be another cishet white man. I think even part of Mayday's problem is that we're not really upping the ante that much with daughter Spider-Man, Spider-Man but a girl. Aranya is where we really start to see like, okay, but there are millions of people in New York City and other people that are nothing like Peter Parker might want to inherit the spider identity and be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. I think really the the culmination of that is in Miles Morales shifting over to main Marvel continuity and becoming such a big character. But I think it took a really long time to come to grips with the idea that like, no, it can't just be a different dude. That's why nobody really cares about the clones. That's why I think May isn't quite where she could be. But Aranya took off like a rocket because it's like, finally, yes, somebody who is nothing 
like Peter Parker can come into the spider identity and show us all that being the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man does not require living in one neighborhood. And speaking of understandings of Spider-Girl that don't require living in one neighborhood, I just want to go on record as saying I am sexually obsessed with Old Man Logan, (laughs) but I am like morally opposed to the comic. I don't love everything in the future sucks horribly, but it would be hard to talk about other iterations of Spider-Girl that do come up. And, you know, we actually read her. She does appear in Spider-Verse. So we didn't acknowledge it, but, you know, this is a Spider-Girl that comes into existence after Spider-Girl comes into existence and she will play a role in Spider-Geddon. So we're going to talk about her again. But this is Ashley Barton. And one of the things that makes this book so icky, Ashley Barton is the daughter of Peter Parker's youngest daughter and Hawkeye. So it's Peter Parker's granddaughter and Hawkeye's daughter. Now, don't get me wrong. As a poly dude, I have one partner who is 12 years younger than me. I have a partner who is like 12 years older than me. And I have no problems with age. And this is kind of icky. There's a projection to it and the sort of like fact that perhaps Hawkeye has dated a few too many female Avengers. There's an ick to it. There's also like no discussion in which people are sitting down and going, hey, you know, I, I know I'm significantly older or like somebody having a conversation with a friend. This this guy is significantly older than you. Is there like a power dynamic thing here? Do you feel as though you're giving enthusiastic consent? These are things that can happen in the real world and you know about your own relationships. Like I genuinely feel feel comfortable with the fact that I'm not abusing power or taking advantage of anybody. There are ways to do it in comics. People don't do it. Of course not. It's not sexy to have people sitting around a table talking about enthusiastic consent. I get it. But then that means you can't do weird things like this. And also the age gap is like staggeringly more enormous for Hawkeye and Tanya. And it's also just like the fact that it is a product of this is the worst possible future. (laughs) Yeah, of course it's the worst possible future of Hawkeye's hooking up with Peter Parker's daughter. Like things can't be good in this universe. But I do think that sort of speaks to like, maybe we don't, maybe there's any other way to make this happen. Yeah, because the unfortunate thing that winds up happening is she fits into some of the ickier tropes that we've praised Rena for avoiding. It's just sort of true that Mark Millar is the proto writer of the era genre that gave birth to the more troubling elements of Laura's past. That of course being Wolverine, uh, formerly X-23, referenced heavily in our last episode. Because there are ways to do tragic female iterations of characters that have complex love stories without it being icky. Like aforementioned Exiles has an amazing Spider-Woman. Now, I need to be clear, she's not Mayday, nor is she any iteration of Mayday. She's the only thing better. It's Mary Jane Watson as Spider-Woman, and she has a beautiful love story with Sunfire, who is an incredible character and uh, every appearance of Nocturne is an appearance I like so especially a big fan of these issues of Exiles and once again she actually did show up in Spider-Verse. Granted she showed up to die but it was very considerate of her to show up at all. This whole idea of totemic symbology, this idea that who these characters are is an almost mystical property burned into them is part of where I think the 
need for the further discussion on this show came from, you know, that first 15 episodes represents all MC2. And there is like nothing we did in there that doesn't fall technically within the MC2 banner. It's after that where things got a little wacky. We talked the Thunderstrike mini and the Captain America Corps mini. And before we realized it, those were discussing that sort of sense of the totem of these characters. Where like, is this Thunderstrike? It's kind of a whiny man child. We don't love this about him. The Captain America Corps stuff, we thought was great. Like, we thought that those were some really terrific characters. Just we thought the book sucked. We also took a look at the later appearances of the MC2 in varied senses by looking at an appearance in Avengers, Fear Itself, the home front for more Thunderstrike, and Asgard's Avengers and Avengers Academy for literally two panels of Thunderstrike each. And from there on, we are never doing single panel appearances again. <laughs> and then we did right away, but not before spending a bunch of time in Spider-Verse. That was really significant. We took a look at all of the secret wars in our 19th episode before our 20th episode gave us an opportunity to look at none other than Our Lady Mayday Parker alongside technically the first spider child with uh, Spidey Baby. From there, we took a look at Black Tarantula and that was like the first really what the fuck, how is this episode so long? That was the first one where I've like, I've done something wrong here (laughs) in planning this because that one just didn't fucking end. And we did the same thing for the ladies of the Wolverine tribe. And, you know, this episode was originally going to be as Guardians of the Galaxy, just like two episodes ago was supposed to be as Guardians. Technically three episodes ago was supposed to be as Guardians of the Galaxy. But we just keep finding ways in which these things kind of push the conversation back a little bit. I think it's worth stating that the idea of Kevin, the idea of this Thunderstrike guy, I think because his name wasn't on a miniseries, somehow he's just not as remembered. And that's a shame because the Kevin that we cared about in that book was really interesting. And I think he might be one of the first characters in examination that just fails the totem test. I mean, he's an interesting example because like, is he, is this a Thor totem? Is this a Thunderstrike totem? Do we believe that a Thunderstrike totem is a thing? We'll get into it with this, but like, I continue to have hopes for Kevin. Like, I continue to have hopes for Thunderstrike. I don't think that any of the things that we've seen him in in 616 are, damn, that's a cool character. But like, I can see it. I can see where it goes somewhere. And I mean, I feel like the biggest thing is, I don't know that we know what Thunderstrike stands for broadly such that we can know what Kevin should stand for and whether or not he gets there, but we'll get into it. It's so funny to me how much optimism I have about this one particular dude when I'm like the most cynical comic books person there is. And, you know, I think a huge portion of that is about what he was meant to represent in his original appearances in the MC2. He's meant to be like hope. He's meant to be the possibility that someone could get it right. And that's exciting, especially because J2 did the same thing that Thunderstrike did, but J2 kind of did it sillier. And it is very you and I that I would be so attached to the silly one. And you would be attached to the one who's like all about honor and worthiness. And like, you would also find me adorable. And I would be like, yeah, but that guy knows what he's doing. And that that nature of that relationship that is very you and I, that works on like a personal intimate level, but I don't know that it shines on paper like this. And some of what we're finding with Thunderstrike failing to thrive for us, I think is a result of Thunderstrike perhaps being the least developed figure because he was written out so early on, ultimately written back in. But we did lose the momentum on Thunderstrike early 
early on. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And that's why he has a lot of potential, but also is not something that we can really get that excited about. Before we can even talk about as Guardians of the Galaxy, there are some really interesting things that sort of cycle back to a lot of what we've already been discussing. And it has a lot to do with the bigger Marvel engine machine that we've been talking about. And to that end, I want to start off with there is a character in Marvel named Angela. And I believe that we have discussed Angela somewhat gently on this show, but I can't really think of anything other than that Age of Ultron tie-in that we did for one panel that really has had a whole lot of Angela content but for a character who's only been at Marvel for a handful of years she has 85 appearances. Now TK do you have any like real relationship with Angela? So the thing is I did know Angela from the Spawn years. I was not a huge Spawn person but I was a big comics person and I just kind of wanted to know everything that was happening the legal aspect of this lawsuit wherein Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman sparred over who was the owner of Angela and who had the rights to use her. The, things like that always fascinate me. Obviously, I never want things to get litigious, but you know, those those questions, if you are any kind of creative, those are really important things to be paying attention to and talking about, especially if you intend to collaborate with others. But then the idea that this, this character exists, this intellectual property exists from an entirely different line, a different universe, that you are now going to fold into something as long-standing as the Marvel Universe, really just fascinated me. So I was there right from the get-go with Age of Ultron watching her become part of the Marvel Universe. I did read all of Original Sin specifically to get into the backstory with Angela. I've read a couple other things here and there. She started to go in lines and in series that just weren't for me that I'm now getting into primarily because of you. But like, you know, Thor just at the time was not my bag. And so it's taken me a little bit to get there. I find her to be such a gorgeous character in terms of design and one with so much potential. I just remain surprised that after all the hype to get her into the Marvel multiverse, she has since then kind of kept it real low key. Not her brother. No, no. So to help everybody understand a little bit better what we're talking about, when Todd McFarlane, one of the biggest creators in Spider-Man history, struck out to do Image Comics, he contacted names like Alan Moore, who, you know, among other things that it's going to come up in this conversation, is responsible for Miracle Man, Dave Sim, who's, you know, kind of a well-regarded piece of shit, Frank Miller, Neil Gaiman, and more. And the idea was that they would come in and own their ideas at Image. That's the whole point of creator-owned comics. No one realized that when the guys who created Image, and I mean guys, created Image, they did it specifically so that they would be the only one who owned anything, which certainly was not what those creators were under the idea of at the time. Now, it's of note that Neil Gaiman didn't just create Angela and have a couple of writing credits. The things he would go on to create would become such major parts of the Spawn universe that Cogliostro, a character created by Gaiman, would go on to become like the Spawn 
central antagonist Sin, as well as the creation of Medieval Spawn. Now, Medieval Spawn uh, is like the first real node that the Hell Spawn are like a lineage. And so Neil Gaiman's work on the character was so, so definitive and was ultimately, you know, so popular that there were Angela miniseries, which featured Greg Capullo, you know, such a big name in comics even to this day, especially for his Batman work. And over time, the characters that Neil Gaiman had created, even though he was no longer working with Image and Spawn, uh, those characters continued to appear and Neil Gaiman saw no monies. So Neil Gaiman did the thing that a creator should do and they fought for their rights. Over time, there was a lot of back and forth and the ultimate reality was that even if Todd McFarlane had been in the right at one point, he was not acting in good faith and was very clearly not working toward creator shared rights. Ultimately, it was determined that Neil Gaiman did co-own the three characters, but they managed to settle this by Neil Gaiman keeping Angela and the Spawn universe keeping Cogliostro and Spawn as a lineage. Beyond that, there had been some really unkind business practices where when told he could not use those characters originally, Todd McFarlane just created like analogous versions that looked similar with slightly different names and all said and done, it was very ugly. So that by the time in 2013, Marvel Comics purchased Angela from Neil Gaiman with the understanding that it would also involve Neil Gaiman working on Miracle Man, which he had worked so hard to see come into existence. It was shocking that despite in 2013, Marvel purchasing another universe's character. She's only appeared 85 fucking times and like 10 of them are Secret Wars non-canon. The Secret Wars stuff, particularly Angela, Witch Hunter 1602, was one of those moments where that's when I had to stop for a second and go, hey, they don't really use her that much for giving her this big title. Every once in a while, I peek back in and I was actually, when it was being published, I was excited about As Guardians of the Galaxy because it was Angela having a moment. But it is really surprising to me given the in-universe and out-of-universe depth of the mythology surrounding this character that she hasn't seemed to really appeal to anybody. And it does sort of feel like that is maybe one of the bigger things is not that, you know, Marvel isn't hankering to use her, but that for most of the really big name creators that you would need to lift her up to where she needs to be, they don't seem to be clamoring for her. And I sort of wonder if that's a part of the fact that she is a creation of one of the greats and it would be really difficult to put your name in the running against Neil Gaiman for writing this original character. Well, and I think another layer that I just want to add that I think might not be very attractive and maybe I'm just projecting some expectations that I have based on no one particular creator, but an understanding of an unkind industry. I wonder how much of it is perhaps people don't love that she is just out of nowhere Thor's sister and Loki's sister and she's Odin's real first child and there's so much to her that's like, frankly, even though I'm a big fan, irritating that I can't help but wonder if that's played a role in her lack of success. If no one wants to use her because to their mind, incorrect though it is, she is maybe a little too Mary Sue? Fine. 
No, I mean, fine, but like, that's so weak. I am happy that you brought it up because I didn't want to go hard on that. But that was an initial reaction that I had that I found it was very, given that, again, you really unique backstory to this character and how she comes into the Marvel Universe at all. And I even like the idea that there was a 10th realm on, you know, the world tree of Norse mythology within Marvel, which is where Angela came from or which is where she was when she came into the Marvel Universe. I love that idea. I just, the, the the sibling relationship threw me off and I actually was sort of hoping we might get a chance to explore some of these concepts and maybe do some narrative work to get into why Marvel's Norse mythology stuff is going to evolve in very, very different ways from anything that would be recognizable to Norse mythology as we know it when the Phoenix and Thor stuff started coming out because that's not a thing like Norse mythology doesn't have Phoenix and you know Phoenix is not the cosmic firebird of life and death but you know it's a godlike entity and Thor is a god and so there's a degree to which it makes some sense and and I understand that sort of frustration with this weird backstory that felt like it had a lot more to do with hyping up a particular property and doing some synergy stuff but now that we're here we either do the most massive ridiculous retcon or lean into to it and find ways to use other odd narrative opportunities involving Thor to reconcile the kind of clumsy way in which Angela was added into the Thor mythos. Because the way we got there was just awful. And I have always felt very much like, even though I do respect and recognize that there's no way that Marvel did this without some plan, there was a lot of trying to appease big names by my like visual assessment I know nothing you know what I mean but she first comes through in Age of Ultron number one because that broke reality enough that she could get in I actually really love that that's a great use of a trope they'd been overutilizing and made fun of themselves for it in a kind of cool way right then she runs through the pages of Guardians of the Galaxy by Brian Michael Bendis and I even remember thinking at the time they could not have known they were getting her when the book began initially Neil Gaiman was listed as a consultant on the title and oversaw some editing stuff, but really ultimately, you know, didn't do too, too much with the book. And she would stay vaguely in Guardians of the Galaxy through issue 17, where she would get really embroiled in the original Sin storyline. Now, during her time in Guardians of the Galaxy, she would appear in all new X-Men, another Brian Michael Bendis title for Child of Jean Grey, featuring Child Jean Grey, not my favorite thing for either of them. That is like specifically the point at which I'm like, you know what, actually, completely unrelated Jean Grey. I'm fine with it now. Like, I had to give up. So, now all that we know about Jean Grey being the Phoenix, I'm really amused that, <laughs> you know, Angela Phoenix, right. like, that's there's so much, like, six degrees of Phoenix fucking that I can't even stand. <laughs> she would also appear once in Rocket Raccoon Volume 2, but it's in the pages of Original Sin, a Marvel crossover I really love. I know that... He really does love it, guys. I really do. It's hard to even talk about why I love this crossover the way I love it. It's like all the best things about Punisher Max are what a pathetic, impotent, wrinkled, old, roided, out, broken, balding, gray piece of shit Frank Castle has devolved into. He is gross to look at, but it's real hot and you can't look away. And that's original <laughs> sin. That's just the whole run. So good. I love it. And so um, one of the things 
things I really enjoyed about Original Sin was that we find out that turns out heaven, H-E-V-E-N, is the shittiest realm and we're better off without those angels. They suck. I love everything everyone did with that. That's some of my favorite Thor stuff. Completely agree. It's so good. And then it comes up again and we're going to talk about how it comes up again. But like it is so cool that Angela's assassin followed this title so quickly and that it was Kieran Gillen, Marguerite Bennett, Phil Yamines, Stephanie Hans. There was no job that featured a male creator that did not feature a female creator with the exception of editor for that whole title. And just to confirm, that's uh, Angela Asgard's assassin, right? Yes, that's Angela Asgard's assassin, the follow-up to her appearances in Original Sin. And I'm a pretty big fan of that run. If I'm not a fan of something, it's how quickly it gets canceled because of Angela Secret Wars plot contrivance the year doesn't matter which hunter. Yeah, Angela Witch Hunter is, is a 1602 battle world area. Now would be, I think, a good point to mention one of the other really important things about Angela and something I sort of wonder how it contributed to the interest and then maybe the lack of great use on screen canonical queer character with a uh, woman who is her lover and girlfriend that becomes a part of this story that we're going to talk about today. But, you know, we are still talking about a time where not super common and especially, you know, you could have characters who were acknowledged on page to be queer but the acknowledgement was seen as enough sort of doing any depictions of queer love were still not really at that place where it's like definitely okay to show and there was really always a question of whether or not you would see it that was another thing that really fascinated me about her as a character was that she is one of very few characters that meets that bar of new character so you can make her queer but also really important character so it actually makes a statement if she is and I think we comic book fandom wrestles a lot with well you can't just retcon people into being gay you actually completely can do that because we all retcon ourselves into being gay when we finally come out after years of fear but setting that aside make new characters that are gay okay well here's one where it actually could make some sense and so just a really interesting juxtaposition of those two arguments that we're all constantly having with a character that really high profile which is made more complex by the heavy infusion of of Yonic power into Thor at that time. First of all, as a pansexual man, yes. Like, I want some ladies that want to wrestle. You know what I mean? And the women of the Thorverse right now are just so fucking hot. Oh my God. And it should be noted that Angela also, I believe, is pansexual. She's not a lesbian. She has relationships with men. She has that attitude that I think we wish a lot more queer characters, especially those like Cosmic Ilk would have, which is like, you know, I've seen stars rise and fall why the fuck would I care what somebody's gender identity is and that's even a a big thing for me Loki is canonically like you know queer spectrum Angela is canonically queer spectrum I refuse to believe that Odin and Panther never got up to fun and you kind of can't convince me that in a more realistic world that Thor wouldn't say the phrase what could be more manly than taking another man's penis as hard as he can deliver it like 
like I can't imagine that Thor would not sing the praises of the strength of being a proud warrior bottom. Like I assume that Thor tends to be more verse top, but you know, for the right guy, the right Beta Ray Bill, as it were, you know, some alien android horse dick, <laughs> right? So Angela would rebound her queer ass right out of Angela Asgard's assassin into the equally short-lived Angela Queen of Hell. I guess I'm lying there. It ran seven issues, not six. And after that time, she appeared kind of sporadically. And Angela has a really unfortunate thing that I don't love, which is she has real big dollar bin energy. And I hate that. There's nothing worse than when a book or a line is expected to be the it, and then it doesn't move. And then you've just got piles of them and piles of them and piles of them. And the store is always like, oh, do you want me? I'm going to throw in one of those. When you come for a free comic book day, I'm throwing in a number one of that thing because that thing didn't sell. Or yeah, if you check the dollar bin, I have whole runs of the first 10 issues of that book for just $8 because you've spent the money. You've put out the half cost on the book, right? Just as a reminder, anybody who doesn't know how comic ordering works, if the book costs $3.99, it costs the shop $2 to buy it in advance. That's what the previews guide is. Do you see how archaic and unfair this system is to LCS owners, right? So then they've purchased all of those fucking copies, which is where the variants come. If a variant can sell for $100, well, while well, most of those issues, the owner bought for $2 and will sell for $4, making a $2 profit on. If they are able to unload that one for 100 variant at $100, then they're able to make $98 on that variant. That one cover then offsets the failure of 49 copies to sell. When the variant itself requires ordering 100 copies, if you are then able to unload that variant, it takes care of roughly half the order. So when shops here, oh, Angela, she's going to be this big fucking deal. Everybody get ready for Angela. It's going to be like, who's the boss? Everybody's going to be saying Angela so much, right? And, you know, Ray Ann Graff is going to tell her that her hair is holding her back. <laughs> and the outcome of it is your LCS orders 200 copies of Angela Prime number one because they want all of the variants. There's a handful of one for 20 variants. So if they order 200 copies, they're going to get 10 one for a hun- uh, 10 one for 20 variants. Great. So they ordered 200 copies and they're getting 10 of this lower end variant, right? And then they're going to get two of the secondary variant. So that means they're going to be sitting then still on 188 copies that they have to hope to unload at a reasonable price to have gotten that one or two variants that are going to help them pay their bills that. So when Marvel says, Angela, she's going to be the thing. If you want the Angela cover of Guardians of the Galaxy number five, if you want the special Alex Ross variant that has Rena on it, if you want to get your hands on the Arthur Sudam Spider-Girl zombie variant for Amazing Spider-Girl, you have to order this many. Well, that means that 188 copies that you never would have fucking bought 138 of, ever. You never would have bought 138 of that book. Well, now you still have all of those extra copies. And don't get me wrong, it's amazing that you made your money back, but those other books live on in your store. And that literally just take pace. Yeah. And that depreciative value of seeing a book stagnate really affects how people interact with it. You start to think of it as, oh, that's that dollar bin shit. And it's a very interesting cycle because 
yeah, you do. I mean, comic shop owners really have to have their ears to the ground when it comes to comics and really try and understand. Like, you can't just go on Twitter and see a bunch of people talking about a book and go, that's going to be the one. You have to know the demographic that's coming into your store specifically. And you have to start to learn their buying patterns. And you have to figure out how to take a publisher's hype, which sometimes is going to be, hey, we're really committing to this new thing. And sometimes it's going to be, uh, we just got to get you to buy this. And you have to figure out what is what. And from dissecting all of that information, you then make the choice on something like, you know, Angela. And then when it turns out to be a flop, how does that color your decisions going forward? Because you really do have to come to terms with what you've published of a character. That's one of those really tricky, sticky wickets. I think too often people think, oh, well, now they're killing that character is because they're trying to hype the character up. Mm-mm. I think sometimes they kill a character because they need to be fucking reset. Because even if this run is really successful, the last two or three weren't. And frankly, it's probably just this big name writer or this idea at the time or this killer art team. There's a lot of reasons you reset a character. And, you know, I think Angela really needed that reset. She did the time in As Guardians of the Galaxy. And then she did the run of Strike Force with Teeny Howard before reappearing in the Donny Cates run of Thor. She's appeared in both Marvel Voices Pride specials. But Angela is the kind of character that needs a little bit more of a chance to catch on. And part of it is also, you know, we said some things about how she might turn off men for being such a powerful, bombastic woman. Fuck, she might turn off some women for being dressed like slave princess Leia. Like, there's nothing wrong with, I know I appreciate, you know, male sexuality, female sexuality, and there's nothing wrong with a woman appreciating both as well. But to look at Angela is to look at a lot of bare skin. And if that gives you preconceived notions about a character, that's not all your fault. It's a fictional character, not a person, number one. And we're literally talking about like a Norse person. She's blonde haired and blue eyed, well, vaguely strawberry blonde. I don't think anybody's coming for her. You know what I mean? So if you look at this swimsuit model, you know, playboy bunny with a giant sword and think she just kind of looks like the person that tries to sell me Clash of Clans when I get an ad on my phone, (laughs) I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, that is also, it's an aesthetic that people can make work. I think she suffers from not having had enough women writers and artists work on her. I think that her look, everything you said is so spot on, but like it is workable. You don't don't have to change that much to make it workable, but you do need to have women be a part of the book, the type of women that can say like, that is so silly because it's not functional in any way. Like I can understand the idea that this woman wants to be hot while she kills people, but that simply would get in your way. It's just so much of it is male gaze and male fantasy without that heel evening that is a woman coming on and laughing at all the stupid male fantasy stuff. And then, you know, admitting that like, yeah, who doesn't like to look hot? So let's make this work in a way that doesn't border on offensive. Now, it's so significant that even though she is kind of naked, she is often put in warrior positions. And I think that was one of the things that I was really excited to sink my teeth into as Guardians of the Galaxy for. I was really thrilled that I was going to get to see her as a warrior on a team and not just guesting in someone's book. But if I had realized going into as Guardians of the Galaxy that it was going to be 
five issues of Infinity Warp tie-in or Infinity Wars tie-in, whatever it is, and then three issues of War of the Realms tie-in. Man, that's that's kind of a tough swallow for me because you know we've talked about crossovers only in our post coverage, right? In the stuff that we detailed has followed our coverage of the MC2 proper, where we've taken a look at like Age of Ultron and Secret Wars, and you know today we talked a bit more about Age of Ultron, but I was completely out of comics for Infinity Wars. Yeah, me too. Totally out of comics. And it sort of was one of the last bastions I had left to go to because absolute truth, biggest turnoff in the world that I found out about a crossover because I was inundated with toys for it. Biggest turnoff for a crossover I can think of is when it feels, not that it was, but when it feels like it was designed to sell me that like blonde patch figure, diamond patch. Yeah. Um, I don't dislike it, but it's not why I come to the crossover. And the number of issues that are involved with Infinity Wars is just crazy because, first of all, this is the follow-up crossover to another crossover, which is hard for me to even imagine. This follows up Infinity Countdown, which is just crazy. And this was five issues of Infinity Countdown plus a bunch of one-shots. Adam Warlock, Black Widow, Captain Marvel, Daredevil, and an Infinity Countdown Prime, plus two issues of Infinity Countdown Champions, four issues of Infinity Countdown Darkhawk, plus three more issues of Doctor Strange, which were about vaguely the same kind of tie-in, but it's not listed as such. And it's like, okay, so there's a prequel tie-in followed by an actual tie-in, and this one has even more issues. This is Infinity Wars 1 through 6, as Guardians of the Galaxy 1 through 5, the aforementioned Doctor Strange number 3, Infinity Wars Prime, Infinity Wars Fallen Guardian number 1, Infinity Wars Infinity number 1, Infinity Wars Sleepwalker number 1, not to be confused with Countdown to Infinity or Infinity Countdown or fuck me, then Thanos Legacy number 1, Avengers number 10, Venom number 8, Infinity Warps Arachnite 1 through 2, Infinity Warps Ghost Panther 1 through 2, Infinity Warps Infinity Warps 1 through 2. They're they're doing this on purpose. Infinity Warps, Iron Hammer 1 through 2, Soldier Supreme 1 through 2, and Weapon Hex 1 through 2. This just is a fucking rehash of Amalgam, but with none of the DC stuff to make it interesting. Then we had the Aftermath and Wolverine Infinity Watch 1 through 5, which I read and was so fucking confused because I just thought it was a Wolverine book. Whoops. Plus, Secret Warps. I'm so itchy. Okay, Secret Warps, Soldier Supreme, Weapon Hex, Ghost Panther, Arachnite, and Iron Hammer annuals. I'm done. I didn't absorb a single thing you just said. It was a lot, bro. Yeah. Were we asking for it? Did we need it? Were the storylines at the time moving us towards it in a way that felt organic and authentic and interesting? No. No. <laughs> you know, I went back and I did read a lot of it. Not for this, actually, but uh, for some of the more interesting Infinity Warp stuff, honestly. You know, the toys did bother me, but like, I'm a I'm a completionist. I'm a, I'm a I'm a canonist. I gotta know it all, right? And ultimately, it wasn't for me. And that this is born of it feels sort of illogical and not really true. I mean, especially I when we get into the plot of this, which like there's technically like a because that event happened, we are doing this thing. But it literally is that like what they are doing is so not really any Infinity Warps even adjacent thing. And it feels so 
little like an exciting way to re-examine the characters and much more like a fun sandbox to play in. That's one of the conversations we're having a lot about Judgment Day since we know that some parts of it need to, if not have not happened, reverse course by the end. It makes, you know, then why am I buying some of it? And the events of Infinity Warps, like see Gamora as Requiem use the Infinity Gems, now Stones, to do basically what her dad did, get rid of half the population of the world, but by fusing every two people into one. It's just, I mean, it's Cronenbergian nightmare syndrome. And I wish it were Cronenbergian. That would be amazing. But, you know, I'm equally disappointed by the book's later inclusion, Asgardian of the Galaxy, that is, with War of the Realms. Now, I only listed Asgardians of the Galaxy 8 through 10 as War of the Realms tie-ins, but technically, Asgardians of the Galaxy 6 through 7 were listed as Road to War of the Realms. Jesus, this is getting exhausting. We have Asgardians of the Galaxy 6 through 7, Avengers Volume 8, 14 through 17, which we've covered on the show, as well as Thor Volume 5, numbers 10 and 11. So the road to this was mostly written by Jason Aaron, who was then the architect of the series, but with two additional issues of our Asgardians of the Galaxy that only vaguely added anything. From there, it's a six-issue standard miniseries with just copious tie-ins. Three issues of Asgardians of the Galaxy, three issues of Avengers, two issues of Captain Marvel, Champions, and Deadpool. We have one issue of Fantastic Four, plus three issues of Giant Man. Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur make a real weird appearance with issue 43. Superior Spider-Man issues 7 and 8 join the tie-in list. Thor 12 through 14. Tony Stark Iron Man 12 to 13. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl 43 through 46. And let me tell you how funny looking it is in the omnibus when you're flipping through and there's just four fucking issues of Squirrel Girl in there. It's amazing. (laughs) Venom issues 13 through 15 plus a number of War of the Realms miniseries. A five issue War of the Realms Journey into Mystery Mini. A four issue New Agents of Atlas. Three issues for Punisher. Spider-Man and the League of Realms 1 through 3. War of the Realms Strike Force. Dark Elf Realm number 1. The Land of Giants number 1. And the War Avengers number 1. Then there's Uncanny X-Men War of the Realms 1 through 3. Which is one of the most fucking Rosen. It's one of the most Rosencanny things I've ever read. And I. Moving on. And then War of the Realms War Scrolls 1 through 3. After that there was an Aftermath era. Fuck me. And it's War of the Realms Omega 1. Uh, Loki 1 through 5 Punisher Kill Crew 1 through 5 Thor 15 and 16 and then Valkyrie 1 through 10 there would have been 12 issues but the series was truncated early we have covered that series in its entirety plus all of the follow-ups from Valkyrie I am a fan of War of the Realms but I would chop this motherfucking book this omnibus I would cut half the the tie-ins out I would cut them out so hard I'm surprised they didn't do a War of the Realms companion omnibus for the I mean I guess it's because nobody would buy it but some of this stuff sounds cool it just doesn't sound like necessary for somebody who might be interested in just having that crossover book on their shelf and that's you know part of the problem I agree with you that it would have been cool if they could split it in two but then if you were to split out the stuff that's not core what would you be splitting out everything but the six issue miniseries perhaps or you'd keep anything that's Jason Aaron's side story so I guess of that like 43 issues I could make a case for the main volume being like 18 of them, but then that's just going to qualify as a Marvel hardcover, uh, one of their OHCs, and it's not uh, one of their oversized, but it's not going to count as part of the omnibus line because they've become very clear about an omnibus having a 
certain page count. And I think as tempted as they would be to split it into two $75 volumes, I think they're a little bit more content taking the upfront money on a $125 single volume for the less production cost and certainty of second volume purchases. And I think you are speaking to one of these things that we come into a lot. And one of the reasons I love our discussions is because I do tend to be very cynical, very fact-based, but comics is a place where I sometimes let my imagination run wild. And when you and I talk, I often am reminded. So like here I am saying like, well, why wouldn't they just split it in two? Because I'd really love to have the War of the Realms Omnibus, but I don't want that other stuff. And like, or maybe I will want it and then I'll have these two great volumes. And pointing out that like financially, it is just not the thing that is going to work. And sure, we would all love to have a perfect omnibus that only collects the stuff that we think is good. But would this company still exist if it were in the habit of creating conceptually perfect omnibuses that didn't sell well? No. Because that's the nature of where comics have gone. It's something that we never had to talk about in early Spider-Girl days. We felt at times like issues existed for no reason. We would talk about what is the purpose of this story. And I think maybe we talk about that a little bit with event book nature kind of side story shit that we, you know, might cost a big fan, just not a fan of the way your spider work was treated, right? So that's a thing that as Guardians of the Galaxy ultimately kind of burdened me with, which was a disappointment in that I don't know that this book had a purpose. It feels a little bit more like it was just a facilitator. Now that's not to say that I, because I'm using purpose a little poorly here. I don't know that this book had an in-universe narrative purpose. I believe this book had a corporate synergy, line all your pieces up where they go kind of purpose. And that's fine. But considering this is Thunderstrike's like only appearances for a while, and we clearly have some affinity for, if not outright affection for Angela, I am puzzled where this book or what they thought they were doing with this book. I don't know. It just really feels unsung. And that's probably why I gave it some lower marks than I wanted to. But I feel like this should have been the book that had me like sploosh attack. Yeah. And I think the disappointment comes from the fact that it is, it is not that it, the concept is so like, man, if you pulled this off, we would never stop talking about it. And the fact that it's just like, it's fine is disappointing. I would rather it be a total disaster that I could just drop my jaw at how wrong they got this stuff. But this is just like, it's, it's okay. And the mediocrity is the killer. I, we talked maybe two episodes ago about just the fact that like the most recognizable character is Scourge. The most recognizable character for people who don't do the comics but do the MCU is Scourge. You know, you have Angela who, as we have discussed, is in a weird kind of limbo place at this point. I was saying that it's odd that they chose Brunhilde as the Valkyrie because we did have Tessa Thompson's Valkyrie at this point who was just doing gangbusters. Frog, probably the most important character in the history of the Marvel Universe, but I'm the only person that's aware of that. My cross to bear. You know, maybe just not the world's biggest seller. This weird fucking kid (laughs) who is the son of an offshoot of a Thor person from the 90s that nobody today knows that has nothing to do with anything recognizable. So it just like, you could have tweaked some characters a little bit and put together a line where people were like, instead of Angela, you do Nebula. Instead of Brunhilde, you do Runa. Characters that people would be like, what are all these characters that I know doing on the page together? And that could have generated some hype. Now, I'm, you know, you work with who you get, obviously. 
completely, but it just seemed like this book was set up without any purpose that wasn't sort of functional to broader Marvel Universe stuff, using characters that were not super recognizable, so that's just a leg down in terms of getting readers to buy it, and then it from there was not bad but not amazing, so the everything I'm saying is just like reasons to not really be that enthusiastic about it, which is just a tough, I mean, it's a tough sell for me to say this to you and say, but keep listening. It's really a fascinating trace for Thunderstrike because while we haven't really had a chance to dive into the issues yet, I think in a lot of ways, the Thunderstrike that we get in As Guardians of the Galaxy is the closest to what we were hoping for, but it does feel just a little bit like the road to get there doesn't have any payoff. This is sort of a dead-end terminus for the character. He has one or two appearances after this, but nothing of substance, nothing significant, and I am ultimately just disappointed by how I'd been excited about As Guardians of the Galaxy, and I still am. I still really like the book. It's a good book, but this is one of those examples where we talk a lot about how like the book itself wasn't great, but the spirit of the book gets an A. <laughs> I kind of think this might be the opposite here. Yeah. What we're going to get to to talk about, the spirit of the thing is what's kind of off, Yeah, but the book does a good job. Cool concepts, but just there's no fire behind it. Yeah, and I promise now that we've hyped it, we are going to talk about it next episode, <laughs> but, you know, this is a good place as any to break, so, you know, I really am glad that we have a sort of a refocus on what we're talking about, this totemic understanding of, is this thing that character? Uh, you know, if we do talk about the Slingers, that's definitely something that was coming out around the same time as Spider-Girl, that's something worth looking at, taking a look at Spider-Geddon, Edge of Spider-Verse, and then ultimately the new Dan Slot Mark Bagley run of Spider-Man that will finish out the Spider-Verse story. There's that in play as well. And then after that, we're going to be taking a look at the JMS Spider-Man run that gave us all of this, that gave us Spider-Verse, that gave us Spider-Geddon, that, you know, kind of reinvigorated the Spider-Man line in a way that I think is partially responsible for Mayday's continued publication. I'm excited. Well, until we come back to test your excitement, TK, where can everybody find you online? You guys know you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And of course, here on X is for Podcast on Wednesdays and Fridays as well, talking about all the books, new and old, that I love so very much. You can find me most of those places too. I'm like all over his Twitter and stuff. And you can find me on my own Twitter at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, Twitter and Instagram. You can find this show at X is for Podcast on Twitter and X is for Podcast.com. And I'm super excited about this. If you've enjoyed our MC2 coverage, you can check out its new YouTube counterpart with amazing visualizations, covers, images, reference points. It looks real good. Our producer Kevo's done an amazing job. He also produces the Billy Club, my examination of Daredevil with Tori Sheehan. Now you can find all of those things on our YouTube channel, Hubs Plus Network, right? You can check that out all you want. Don't forget to like and subscribe over on the YouTube, on this show, everywhere you can. We love making this show for you. And if we know that you're listening, it makes it a whole lot easier to keep making the content you're looking. And so until next time, when we return to talk about some like current-ish funny books, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, Spider-Girl keeps coming back in all her own weird ways, that weird universe. It's a novel, dude. There's a Spider-Girl in a novel that's written by Tom DeFalco based on a Tom DeFalco universe that also featured a character named Wild Thing. I'm retiring my headphones for good. And a good night to you. Right, and we'll see ya. I completely <laughs> lost the point, right. <laughs>